From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll ask the question, what happens to a town when its General Motors plant, which had been there since 1923, closes? And what happens when the town is represented in Congress by Paul Ryan? What happens is everything you thought, and a whole lot more. The town is Janesville, Wisconsin, and that story has now been told in a magnificent new book by Amy Goldstein. We'll speak with her later in the show. Also, the fight for a progressive alternative to Obamacare, that's been the focus of Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. He's one of our heroes. Zoe Carpenter will report. But first, political satire in the age of Trump. Saturday Night Live has just ended its season with its hilarious and important segments where Alec Baldwin played Trump and Melissa McCarthy did those memorable segments as press secretary Sean Spicer. We also have the great work of Samantha Bee and John Oliver and others. Today, we look back on the history of political comedy on TV with a very special guest, Norman Lear, who created All in the Family, a sitcom that made history in the age of Nixon with its political daring and fearlessness. Norman Lear is now 94 years old, and he just published a wonderful memoir. It's called Even This I Get to Experience. I spoke with Norman Lear at his office in Beverly Hills last month. You know, we're all thinking about the white working class, the people who voted for Trump and made him president. They're sort of Archie Bunker types. So I want to talk about Archie Bunker in this context, whether we could have an Archie Bunker character today. But so I I want to talk about All in the Family and where it came from. And basically, how did you manage to make humor out of the most controversial, disturbing, and serious issues of the day in the 70s. Because this was a family wrestling with those issues, just like those families across the country are wrestling with it today. Some of them are pro-Trump, happily, well, I believe anyway, it isn't most of everybody. But You know, when this first, when he, Trump, first came about, before he was president, but when it seemed like it it was possible, I thought and said, I thought he represented the middle finger of the American right hand. And the American people, can I say fuck you on this? You can say fuck you. The American people were looking at the leadership they've had for so many years and I don't care where you look in terms of American leadership if you look at American corporations you're dealing with people who don't give a fuck about you they're just in it for their profits a profit statement this quarter larger than the last rules our land I can't think about the Dakota airbag company which was so troublesome a couple of years ago when we learned about it but then we learned fairly recently, that there were about 11 or more automobile makers, car makers, that bought the airbag and installed the airbag knowing that it had already killed some people. We've lost our way as human beings in terms of leadership entirely. I think all these months later, he is the middle finger of the American right hand. They have no leadership. Well, I want to go back to 
1973, 74, when All in the Family was getting started, nobody thought racism or homophobia could be funny. I mean, maybe Lenny Bruce or somebody like that, but well, nobody thought it could be a network TV. I think today we have the sort of the same feeling. We have to be very careful about the white workers who voted for Trump. We can, we can have satire of Trump, but we're, we're worried about the Trump people because we want to understand them. We need to win them back. What was it like in 1973 and 74? I remember we didn't like Nixon. We, we hated Nixon. We were sort of fearful and defiant of you Nixon. Know, there was an antecedent to uh, All in the Family. It was a British show called Till Death Us Do Part. Yeah. I like to think, uh, had I never seen it, I might have come across the idea of doing All in the Family. But I can't, you know, I'll never be able to say that's for sure. It was very different from All in the Family because he was totally unlikable and nobody cared about that he had a daughter, he had a, a wife who loved him or, you know. I couldn't do it, given my nature, without recognizing it as somebody who existed here in our culture and was loved by family mm -hmm. and was in some ways lovable because he was human and carried all those human frailties with him. So Archie Bunker comes out of all of those mixed feelings and that antecedent. Looking back and forth, Archie Bunker was a familiar and beloved figure to 100 million people, but I know at the time, the network in particular was very anxious about putting this character on TV. And I know you had a lot of big battles with them. What to them were the most uh, uh, threatening and dangerous elements that gave them the most worries and, and, and led uh, them to put pressure on you? The mode abortion issue went on the air in October or whatever that date was when nobody knew it was coming. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Now, maybe there were, you know, the sponsor got some letters or they got some letters. I, I got a few letters, but relatively nothing. It wasn't like the American people didn't experience abortion up the street, down the street, across the street. Maybe we, <laughs> it was alive, the subject, and well in our homes. Nothing happened. When the show went into reruns in, let's say, May, the far right, religious right, knew the show was coming. Oh. Then they were thoroughly prepared. Some lay down in front of Mr. Paley's car, who owned oh. the network in New York. Oh. There were people who lay down in front of my car when I came into Metro Media here in uh, L.A. And, you know, in the mail and so forth, there was a storm. Uh, but that was all people who, were, who knew it was coming and represented a tiny fraction of the American audience. Archie said a lot of horrible racist things. And I remember there was a big debate about does putting this on the air make racism more acceptable? And I know you had to deal with this many weeks. What, what's your feeling now about that? I mean, I didn't see what could be wrong about dealing with something we all knew. That was just something we ought to be talking about. Today, there's a lot of political satire about Trump, especially Saturday Night Live. Trump has made it clear that he's very irritated by, by Saturday Night uh, Live. Did you ever hear from, from Nixon? 
you didn't have direct satire of the president, but certainly you took up issues of Vietnam, draft dodging. Uh... Yeah, no, in the White House tapes, there was a show where Archie uh, learned that his uh, a good friend and somebody he admired a great deal as a full black on a uh, sports team, on a uh, football team. They were arm wrestling. Uh, when Archie, who had left the house because he was in an argument about gay and who was gay and who was with his uh, son-in-law, and uh, he's telling this guy, and he said, can you believe he's telling me that you're... And he couldn't get the word out. And while they're holding arms, you know, while they... <laughs> the fullback says, uh, he's right, Archie. <laughs> and Archie's face, only only Carol O'Connor could deliver what he delivered there. Oh, come on, you're kidding. No, 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 Archie, he's right. Richard Nixon saw that episode, and he's on tape. We have the tape saying that uh, they're making fun of a good man. They're making... And then talking about gays... And talking about the whole Greek culture fell as a result of uh, homosexuality. Uh, fags, he used the word fags. He also put me on the enemies list, on his enemies list. Congratulations. So, so I would, that's exactly the way I felt about it. Well, let's talk about political satire, political humor today, and whether there could be an Archie Bunker in the age of Trump. The main humor we have is this satire of the president, Saturday Night Live, Bill Maher. What do you think of the humor that we have? What do you think are the possibilities? Well, uh, nobody's doing it, but I think it, I think it certainly can be done. I mean, they are... Sad and funny and real and human, those people who uh, perhaps I understand a little bit more about what people are going through than I did then, because I've had a lot of time, uh, more time to think about it. But uh, I find myself wishing to understand those people, and that's where the middle finger of the American right hand came from. They don't have reason to cheer our leadership. They have reason to make fun of it. You know, I, I'm so surprised in every direction I look. Where are their cheerleaders? Where are the people? I have written to several presidents when they assumed office and said, in a couple of cases, I'm older than you, uh, but I need a dad in the White House. Country needs a father in the White House. Age has nothing to do with it. Be the father we're looking for. And I couldn't mean it more. You know, I am not, despite the fact that I've been successful and despite the fact that I'm my age and I've had an education, uh, only one year of college, but I had some ed education, and I'm known to be smart, I'm not well-versed in American politics. I go largely from my gut, and my gut tells me there's no leadership around. You know, what, who are they going to look to? I don't think uh, Senator Schumer does the job that uh, Elizabeth Warren does. We just learned a couple of days ago that in 1967, a woman had to use her initials and pretend to be a man in order to run the marathon. Fifty years later, she ran it again. Uh, so... 
we've been a long time coming out of a jungle. Well, there's one respect in which there could never be an Archie Bunker. There could never be another All in the Family. TV has changed so much now. All in the Family had, what, 100, 120 million people watch. Today, no show, even the Super Bowl barely makes it to 100 million people. So no show will ever have the audience that All in the Family. We didn't have 100 million people. That figure, 120 million people, was... uh, uh, Mike Wallace, he spoke of 120 million people watch Norman Lear shows. So it was the adding up the, the numbers and so forth. But we did have 60 million. <laughs> we did have, I, this is my favorite statistic, that the water table in New York <laughs> reflected commercials on all in the family. <laughs> well... Norman Lear, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, you're welcome very much. If the Democrats are going to regain power in Washington, they'll have to do more than fight against Trump. They'll have to declare what they are for. And health care will be at the top of the list. One of the leaders in the Senate who's been fighting on this issue for a long time is Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley, the only senator to endorse Bernie last November. Zoe Carpenter has been reporting on Jeff Merkley, and we turn to her now. She's Associate Washington Editor of The Nation. Zoe, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, Jeff Merkley made the news recently with his one-man filibuster against the nomination of Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. How long did he speak? He spoke for over 15 hours overnight, um, and he spoke on all manner of topics related to the court, um, but he really had sort of three main critiques against Gorsuch. Uh, You know, his his record, the fact that he um, was basically stealing the seat from uh, Obama's previous nominee uh, and his connection to to big money. And, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't a successful filibuster, but it did... It was part of um, Merkley raising his his profile, which we've seen lately. So we're talking about the only senator to endorse Bernie, the senator who filibustered Neil Gorsuch for more than 15 hours. Who is this guy and how did he get to the Senate? Well, he's a really interesting character and he describes his route to the Senate as peripatetic. Um, he's done a lot of different types of work. When he was um, recently out of college and out of his graduate program, he worked as a nuclear analyst, but he's also worked as a carpenter for Habitat for Humanity. And his early political education was interning for the moderate Oregon Republican Senator Mark Hatfield. Uh, and that was a very different time in the Senate. So he has an interesting perspective on how much the Senate has changed over the years and and how much more rancorous and deadlocked it is now compared to, um, you know, the 80s. Um, he He's a staunch progressive. And he one thing that's interesting and, and sort of notable about him is that like Bernie Sanders, he's very connected to grassroots groups and to activists. And he understands um, the power in activism, whereas I think there are some, some other senators um, and other politicians in general who see the grassroots as a more adversarial force. Yeah. Merkley is, is really known for working with activists. In your cover story on Jeff Merkley for The Nation magazine, you quote the president of the Oregon AFL-CIO saying that Jeff Merkley's default is working people's issues. Do you think he's right about that? 
Yeah, based upon his record and the way he speaks about about issues. And he traces that all back to his upbringing. He was born in a small timber boom town in southern Oregon. And his father was a mechanic who worked in the timber industry. And he was, his father was a union member. And, um, you know, he was able to raise his family in a decent neighborhood, buy a house, have a car, send um, young Jeff Merkley to scout camp. Um, and have a, a modest but very stable um, lower middle class lifestyle. And uh, Senator Merkley still lives in the very same neighborhood of Portland that his family moved to when he was in elementary school. And he's just seen that stability that his own family have slip away for um, lower middle class and, and working class families there now. Uh, that neighborhood is is increasingly an immigrant neighborhood and it's increasingly difficult for people to afford their own homes, to afford health care. Uh, and so, so Senator Merkley's uh, perspective is definitely shaped by um, by living in that neighborhood for so long, and from you know his family background. You report in the Nation that Jeff Merkley has been working quietly to advance a full slate of progressive issues, from Wall Street regulation and housing to LGBTQ rights climate change, and ending the war in Afghanistan. We're most interested today in what the Democrats can do about Republicans' effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. Everybody agrees that Obamacare, as they say, needs fixing. What does Jeff Merkley say about that? Well, you know, Jeff Merkley, his entire career in the span in the Senate has sort of been dominated by this discussion around the Affordable Care Act. He was elected the same year as Barack Obama. And when the Affordable Care Act was being developed, he was a strong proponent of a single payer system. And then when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, he was a strong proponent of a public option. And now fast forward eight years later, and um, the Democrats are beginning to to talk more about a public option. Um, Senator Merkley was responsible for reintroducing a resolution in the fall after one of the insurers, Aetna, announced that it was going to pull out of some marketplaces. And so Senator Merkley restarted the conversation about um, the, the need for a public option to, to add more diversity to the marketplace and give people another option to create more competition. Um, he would ultimately like to see a single-payer system. And when I asked him if now is the time to push for it, he said that he does think that there is a much bigger appetite for a simpler system now. People sort of un are beginning to understand that the Affordable Care Act is is the conservative solution. And, and one way we see that is that people tend to be very happy with the Medicaid expansion, which is similar to a single-payer system. Obviously, it doesn't cover everyone in the country, but for the people that are eligible, it is a single-payer system. Um, and and whereas the, the marketplaces, insurance exchanges have been less successful and people are more frustrated with them. Um, so definitely he sees more of his colleagues be open to this conversation about a public option. Uh, one other interesting idea he has would be pushing to lower the eligibility age for Medicare um, as sort of a bridge to a single-payer system. So get more people invested and appreciating this idea that, look, the government actually can provide affordable quality health care um, or, or health insurance for, for people. So lowering the age of Medicare eligibility points in a one very clear direction, Medicare for all. Does exactly something that Bernie talked about. Does Jeff Merkley talk about Medicare for all? Yeah, I mean, that's another way of, of, of saying a single-payer system, essentially. Um, and you could structure it in various ways, but the idea being is that um, the government is in, in the business of providing health insurance for everyone. And then you wouldn't have these gaps that we have, um, both geographic gaps and, and gaps based upon income. 
I want to ask a little bit more about uh, Oregon. I know Jeff Merkley has been doing some town halls. Uh, as you said, for a, a lot of people in Congress, the town halls have been uh, raucous uh, events that many of them, especially the Republicans, wanted to avoid. I, I believe that not everyone in Oregon is a Democrat. What have Jeff Merkley's town halls been like? Well, he says that there has been a, a, a very noticeable shift uh, in the tenor of his town halls since Trump was elected. Um, he said that it's been, quote, unrecognizable. So when he when he was first elected in 2008 and when he began his term in 2009, as the discussion about the Affordable Care Act was, was underway and right after it was passed, he was going to town halls in the conservative parts of central and eastern Oregon, um, which really is most of the state outside of Portland and, and Eugene, that corridor. The rest of the state tends to be a pretty solidly Republican territory. And he was just getting hammered in that those town halls. Uh, people who were worried about this, quote, um, government takeover of health care. They were worried about death panels, all of the sort of right-wing conspiracy theories about the Affordable Care Act. Um, he was told at one point to show up, that he should show up to a town hall wearing a bulletproof vest because people were wow. so angry. Uh, now, he's going to the same counties. He does a town hall in each county every year. And uh, he says that the Tea Party activists are staying home and the people who are there at the town halls are cheering for him um, and are cheering for him because he's defending the Affordable Care Act and because he's trying to push beyond it. He's hearing more calls for single payer, uh, more calls to strengthen Medicaid rather than cut it, uh, and really feeling this strong backlash to the repeal and replace plans that are coming out of the Republican Party. One quick question. What did he do about the bulletproof vest, the advice that he should wear a bulletproof vest? He declined to wear the vest. And, um, you know, th there was no major incident, although he does remember that meeting uh, was completely full. There was a large crowd outside. And, and he told me that he remembers people banging on the walls and yelling because they were so angry at him. You talked about Merkley understanding uh, what I guess we call the inside-outside strategy, working both in the Senate and with grassroots groups. Let's talk a little bit more about what the outside strategy is on health care today in Oregon and everywhere else. Well, I think part of the outside strategy we've already seen, which is showing up at those town halls and, and using yeah. some of the, the tactics that the Tea Party itself used, um, making legislators see you and hear you, um, flooding their uh, inboxes, flooding the phone lines, and just be, becoming engaged in a way that uh, perhaps people weren't as engaged in the Obama era, on the left at least. And so that's part of it. I think part of it is then looking beyond defending the ACA. If, if we don't want to repeal it, what do you want? How do we patch those holes? And um, many of the progressive grassroots groups are the ones who have been talking about single payer for a long time. And so I think Senator Merkley understands that you're never going to beat a lobby that's as powerful and has as much money and an influence as the insurance industry um, unless you have a, a really an unprecedented campaign from uh, ordinary people because the insurance lobby is uh, is just so powerful in Washington. And the drug industry, too. It's not just the insurance companies. But if you really want to lower the cost of health care, you have to take on all of these uh, huge business and corporate interests that are quite entrenched in Washington. Uh, we've said that Jeff Merkley was the only senator to endorse Bernie Sanders uh, during the primaries. How close is he to Bernie on issues other than health care? Bernie had proposed 
free college, uh, $15 uh, minimum wage, getting big money out of politics. Where, where do he and Bernie overlap? Where do they differ? They're quite similar. I would say they're two of the most progressive members of the Senate. Uh, and Bernie Sanders speaks very highly of Jeff Merkley. He, he told me that uh, he thought that Senator Merkley was one of the most progressive members of the Senate and one of the hardest workers that he knows. Uh, and he praised him for understanding the importance of, of grassroots pressure, especially on the pocketbook issues, on the economic issues. They're very closely aligned and they often you often see them co-sponsor legislation together uh, on things such as free college tuition, Jeff Merkley is very strong on financial reform. He was actually one of the people who was responsible for getting the Volcker rule passed in the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act after the Wall Street crash. And you sort of saw his characteristic attention to details in, in that battle. He delighted in telling me about how he used a obscure parliamentary maneuver to get the Volcker rule moving forward in the Senate. He's not as outspoken as Bernie. He doesn't channel the same sense of outrage uh, and moral indignation that Bernie does when he, he speaks publicly. But in terms of the substance and the issues that they care about, um, I would say that health care, the environment, financial reform, uh, alliances with unions and standing up for, for working people, they're both very much in the same mold. Bernie's going to be 79 when the next elections come around. Is there any chance Jeff Merkley would run in Democratic primaries? And if so, do you think his more low-keyed approach might succeed? So when he's been asked about it lately, he he said that he won't rule anything out. And he is sometimes mentioned as a, as a possible contender. He was also mentioned as a potential vice presidential pick for Hillary Clinton um, just because of his alliance with the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. You know, I think he's definitely someone to watch. He is pretty much exactly the antithesis of Donald Trump in the sense that he is calm and collected. He's understated. Um, he's very thoughtful. He is very strong on policy and really pays attention to detail. So I think that's a good position to be in if if people are sick of uh, the bloviating showman. <laughs> On the other hand, it, it must be said that he is not as well-known as someone like Elizabeth Warren. And he is sometimes uh, called bland or described as um, a less inspiring speaker than someone like Bernie. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard him speak, and I think that he he's thoughtful, he's articulate, uh, he knows the issue inside and out. Whether he has ambitions, I can't say, but he will definitely be an important player in the Democratic Party going forward, regardless of whether he runs for president or not in 2020. Zoe Carpenter, she wrote about Jeff Merkley for the current issue of The Nation magazine. Zoe, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about what happens to a town when its General Motors plant, which had been there since 1919, closes. And what happens when the town is represented in Congress by Paul Ryan? What happens is everything you thought and a whole lot more. The town is Janesville, Wisconsin, and that story has now been told in a magnificent new book by Amy Goldstein. She's been a staff writer at the Washington Post for more than 25 years. She was part of a team of Post reporters who won a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of 9-11. She was also a Pulitzer finalist in 2009 for a series she co-wrote on the medical treatment of immigrants in federal detention centers. Now she's covering Trump care. Her new book is called Janesville, An American Story. 
Amy Goldstein, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tell us about Janesville before the Chevy plant shut down. Well, Janesville was a perfectly ordinary small city with a very proud industrial past. And when I was thinking about this idea of writing a close-up of what really happens when work goes away, Janesville was attractive to me for a number of reasons. For one thing, it lost a lot of jobs in the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. If you look at the county that Janesville sits in, about 9,000 jobs went away during those two years. There's a lot of jobs that vanished, and they were good jobs. The best of the jobs were jobs at the General Motors assembly plant, which had been paying $28 an hour. So these were really good working class jobs with good benefits. Another thing that was attractive to me about Janesville as a setting was that it had never been part of the Rust Belt before. Um, This plant had been going and going and going for decades, for generations. And sometimes products came that you know, were the things that the plant was making and sometimes products went and they waited for a new plant to come. But something always came back. So there had never been a period in which jobs really went away in Janesville. And I was interested in writing not about a Rust Belt town that had had an accumulation of economic decay, but what this Great Recession really did to people and to a place. When the GM factory closes in Janesville, it's not just the GM workers who lose their jobs. There's a there's a domino effect throughout the town. Uh, tell us about that. Well, there really was a cascade of lost jobs. Because the General Motors plant was there, and the General Motors plant, I should say, had at its heyday in the 1970s more than 7,000 workers. Uh, the last two shifts that went away in the final several months had about 3,000 workers. So that in itself was still a big number of people. But because the plant was there, there were a lot of local supplier companies that made things for the plant. There was a seat-making plant called Lear that had uh, about 800 workers. Um, There were lots of smaller companies that existed because the plant was there. They were very tied to what was going on at the assembly plant. So when the assembly plant shut down, all these other jobs went away. And then once that happened, there was a further ripple effect. I mean, if you think about small restaurants... Um, or other little businesses, if you had all these unemployed people in town, there were fewer people who could afford to go out to eat. I got to know a woman who was running a little daycare center and had been doing that for years. But some of her uh, kids' parents in the daycare center now didn't need anybody to watch their children because they were out of work. So there was just this broad ripple effect. Uh, When the GM plant closed, all these other jobs vanished too. One of the most eye-opening things to me in your book is what you learned about job retraining. Those good manufacturing jobs are not coming back to Janesville, uh, but at least we can retrain the laid-off workers to start over with some new skills. Every, everybody thinks this. Even the Republicans are sort of in favor of job retraining. How did job retraining work out for the laid-off GM workers in Janesville? So I took a good hard look, partly by interviewing people and partly by doing a statistical analysis at what happened to about 2,000 people uh, in and around Janesville who went back to school at a place called Black Hawk Technical College, which is a small uh, college right in Janesville. Uh, So about 2,000 people returned in a couple of years after all these jobs went away. And it was really sobering because I came to think that this college had done a very, very good job trying to help these laid-off factory workers as best they could. For instance, it became quickly apparent that many of these people weren't very good at using a computer. They hadn't needed to do that in their factory work. 
so the college quickly started a computer boot camp. I mean, that's an example of one of many things that the college did to try to help these returning students along. But it was a really hard thing to do. I mean, if you think about being in your 30s or 40s, you've been out of school half your lifetime. You might not have been a big fan of school in the first place, which is why you chose to go into well-paid factory work. And now you don't have an income. You don't know what your future is going to be work-wise and you expected to study. I mean, that's a pretty hard anxiety-inducing thing. And it turned out, if you looked at the statistics, we compared, I worked with a couple of labor economists on this, and we compared the data on people who were unemployed in that part of southern Wisconsin who did and did not retrain. And to our great surprise, it turned out that people who had retrained were less likely a few years later to be working all four quarters of the year. And they were more likely to have bigger drops in their pay from before the recession to a few years afterwards. How can that be? How do you explain that? I think a big obvious factor is that there just weren't enough jobs. You know, the college was pretty smart in conferring with businesses that were left in the community to try to get a sense of where jobs would be a few years from then. And they tried to encourage uh, the returning students to go into those fields. But I just heard over and over again interviewing people that somebody I know, for instance, had uh, studied uh, computer IT and was working in a grocery store for a while because he couldn't find a job. So no amount of smart retraining is going to make up for a lack of jobs in the community. The other thing that I should say, and Blackhawk Tech was not unique in this, is that many people who started to retrain did not finish. And that's true all across the country in terms of people at community and technical colleges. Um, It can be hard to be a student. In this case, people may have gotten even bad job offers while they were in school and just felt like they had to grab what they could when they could find it. You say there's an optimism gap in Janesville today. What is the unemployment rate there, and, and what is the optimism gap? Well, how things look today in Janesville, I think, depends on where you sit in town. And they were people who were not affected by all these vanished jobs. I mean, they were certainly aware this was happening around them, but not everybody's work lives and pay was disrupted. So some people are doing just fine. Many people are not doing fine. You ask about how things are today. Well, the unemployment rate rocketed up to more than 13% in early 2009, just a few months after all this factory work vanished. It's now just under 5%. So if you look at just the unemployment situation, looks much better. Yeah. Very different picture if you look at what's happening with people's wages. Um, There are some jobs that have come back into town, but they're not paying anything like what General Motors used to pay people in Janesville, Wisconsin. Well, we've avoided talking about Donald Trump. I think now we have to. Uh, Trump ran promising people like those former GM workers in Janesville that he would bring back their jobs. Did they believe him, do you know? Did Trump carry Janesville? Well, it's an interesting thing. You can imagine the morning after the November election, I raced to my computer to see how Janesville had voted. And, you know, the surprise in Wisconsin was that for the first time in years, the state went Republican. So the state as a whole did vote for Donald Trump for president. On the other hand, Janesville has, uh, in Rock County, its county, uh, has a long tradition as a pretty Democratic place. Janesville, as you might imagine, is an old United Auto Workers town 
And that UAW identity has lingered even after a lot of the union jobs themselves have gone away. So it turns out that in 2012, 62% of the people in Janesville County voted for the re-election of Barack Obama. This time, 52% voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So it stayed Democratic, but it was down quite a bit. And if you looked at the absolute numbers, the reason that the vote was down on the Democratic side was that there were fewer people voting Democrat who turned out to vote, not because there were so many more Republicans voting. So last question, what could we as a country have done better for the people of Janesville? What could have happened there? What should have happened there? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And that's partly why I wrote this book, to try to you know stoke a little bit of empathy and encourage people to think about what should we do in places. And obviously, there are many places across the country in recent years where lots of work of various kinds has gone away. And I guess that I came away thinking that this is just an innately hard thing to do. Janesville is a very resourceful, resilient community. It has a long, proud industrial past, has a lot of uh, innovative thinking. I mean, people have tried and they're still trying hard to do economic development work locally. People in the community were very resourceful in applying for federal grants of various kinds to try to help. So I think that the kind of leverage that a community can try to derive from federal help, Janesville's trying to do, but it's just hard to bring back work of that quality and that volume. The book is Janesville, an American Story. The author is Amy Goldstein. Amy, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.